Disclaimer, this content is meant for information only and not as a diagnosis or medical treatment for any condition. If you or a loved one needs help, please seek out a qualified medical professional for assistance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Katie Osta, BSN, RN, IBCLC, and infant feeding specialist. Quench your thirst for knowledge and travel with me across the nation to discover, learn, collaborate, and better serve clients from all over the globe. Let's ride and thrive together. So thanks for joining me this morning, Richard. I'm so excited to chat again. I had the best time at your office. I mean, you were hopping all day long. Yeah, no, I'm excited to do this little podcast here. Um, this will be fun. And uh, yes, it was great having you in the office. It's uh, always a pleasure to have people come visit. Yeah, I had no idea you were very busy. It's a very busy practice. Yeah, we normally do um, around 10 new patients a day. And then we do probably seven or eight follow-ups a day. Uh, so we keep it rolling. Um, but make sure, of course, to spend quality of time with each person. But sometimes it's just something you know, simple, like a, just a lip tie only on an older kid. That would be a shorter consult versus sometimes you know, they have multiple issues and special needs or uh, it's a baby with all kinds of complicated issues. So it takes 45 minutes for a consult, but it often works out too. We can do about five in the morning, five in the afternoon. Yeah, I mean, you were definitely busy and hopping, but I saw you in every room take time to sit down with the clients to, you know, talk to them, to listen, and to really let them tell you kind of their story and why they're here. I didn't feel rushed in the rooms. I definitely felt like you used your time very efficiently in between. You didn't have a lot of downtime, but I don't think it didn't seem like that to the patients. I don't think you really just be efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And like one of our things that we talked about, like when I lecture and stuff is like, listen to mom's story without interrupting, empathize, take notes, you know, and then we review the systems, uh, like review the different symptoms that they checked off one by one and kind of elaborate on those. And then we'll do our exam, take photos, discuss risk benefits, alternatives, and then uh, see what questions parents have and uh, whether they want to do it that day or another day or um, if they need some you know, other therapy first. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you've got a great flow down. Yeah, sometimes I feel like I just say the same thing over and over and over like it's Groundhog's Day. Um, but that's that's with anything you do. I'm sure you feel the same way with lactation too. I do. Um, There's days but, that I'm like, if only I could record myself explaining what a tongue tie is. But I know that I, I don't really mean that because I need to answer the questions and talk through it with every every client. Yes. Explain. But there are times that, yeah, I feel like a broken record. Oh my gosh, I said the same thing over and over. But you have mm-hmm. to look for like the uniqueness in each patient's story. And um, that's what makes it enjoyable too. And the follow-ups are also really enjoyable too, because like so, a lot, some people don't get people back for follow-ups. Well, then you don't know if it improved or what happened or how to refine your technique. So each step from assessment to diagnosis, to treatment, to follow-up, and everything in between, I mean, it has to be done just right or else it won't work and you won't get the results that, you know, the patients want and that you want also. That's true. And I actually have met with a few providers who I think, especially because of COVID, they stopped really doing follow-ups, a couple of them in California, and they were just sending videos or photos. And I think you really missed something there. I think, like you said, I mean, how are you supposed to know if your technique is really working well? I mean, on the positive side, it's sometimes just great to see things going well and to meet the families and see that you've made a difference and that they're having that's the fun part. On it, right? That is so yeah, that's fun. that's the best part. There's the follow-up. I love the follow-ups. I love meeting new people too. So that's not to say that's bad, but the follow-up, it's like, man, this is great. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's not. We had one yesterday, like, oh, it's not that much better, but the baby got RSV, was hospitalized for a week. Oh. Um, and so like right after the release, like a few days later, and so uh, just from daycare, didn't get it from us, obviously, but, you know, and so we had to talk through strategies and what to do. And they're seeing a feeding therapist and body work and all this other stuff. Uh, yeah. It's just going to take some time. So it's it's not a magic bullet for every baby. Uh, I'd say, you know, most of the time, you know, 95, 99% of the time, we see some improvements in the first couple of weeks, but, you know, every baby is different and individual and every family is different too. Yeah. Definitely. I've had mine that do really well in the first two weeks. And I've definitely had a fair share of ones who don't. I think I see a lot of, you know, people who've waited, right? They may have seen Mm -hmm. um, lactation at the hospital, or they just thought they could do it on their own. They've, you know, gotten questions answered from the pediatrician, which didn't really help. And they've still been searching. And so I'm, you know, when I'm seeing someone a few months in, 
you know, we're two, three, four months old, it's going to be a little bit harder than it is, especially to get to the really good breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. You know, the baby, yeah, the longer you wait, movement, the, but- the longer you wait, the more compensations, the more bad habits, and it's going to take longer. Yes. So. And then we run into mommy issues too of supply oh, yeah. and, you know, all of that, that just gets really complicated. And if mom's pumping and if the baby, you know, is the baby getting frustrated at the breast because they can't use their tongue or are they getting frustrated at the breast because mom's milk supply dropped and they're not getting enough, you know? And psychological factors too. I mean, it's like, oh, like I just can't do this. Or moms always think it's their fault uh, when I'm trying to encourage them. No, it's not your fault. There's a piece of tissue there that's too tight that shouldn't be there. You know, it's not baby's fault either. Uh, if anyone's dad's fault, Probably 90% of the time, the tongue tie seems to be from dad. But really, um, yeah, it's what we're finding typically is uh, that we'll check both parents some, uh, sometimes and uh, we'll see whose is tighter. And almost always it's dad's. Occasionally it's mom's. Then we still blame dad because dad gets blamed for everything anyway. But yeah, um, mom's been through a lot. So that seems fair. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. If I, I don't know if I told you this, but it wasn't. I mean, I've known that my kids have tongue tie probably the last year and a half or so they're older, they're 13 and 10. And so we've been kind of trying to figure out how to deal with it. And we've started our road yesterday. We actually started getting fitted for expansion on one of my kiddos and we're started myofunctional therapy, but it wasn't until I actually was in your office and I was reading through the symptom forms that I mm-hmm. realized that I could check off nearly every box for my own childhood and adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh yeah. my God, I haven't looked at myself. Like I just hadn't. I mean, I've, I have my own health issues. I had a shoulder replacement, like what are we now, maybe five, eight years ago. And, you know, I'm a typical mom and it's like, I'm busy and I'm working and I deal with my kids stuff and I don't think about myself much. It just don't have to take care of yourself. Right. And it just hit me. And I was like, oh my gosh, my whole childhood is like on this form. It's Mm. astounding. And I even talked to my mom about it recently. And I said, you know, do you realize that all of that was related? And she said, well, they knew some of it was because I had the typical, you know, call it difficult breastfeeding. I did breastfeed until 18 months, but I spit up a mm-hmm. lot. It was very colicky. You know, she said I was basically screamed until I was a year old and I had speech issues and still, you know, I'll tell people and it's for the most part, I'd say it's only like an SLP if I'm talking to them that they'll pick up on it. But I hear Mm -hmm. it in my own head when I say things like girl and world, my tongue just doesn't move those well. The RL is That's the hardest blend, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I did had mouth breathing, I had enlarged tonsils and adenoids, and I had bedwetting. And then I had until I was probably like seven, I had grandma seizures because Mm. my tonsils and adenoids. So my pediatrician felt that it was my tonsils and adenoids that were so large they were compressing my trachea. And my body would do a seizure to move them. My neurologist felt that it was something else. And it wasn't until I was about seven that they had them removed. And I never had another seizure after. And it's crazy, right? I'm like, oh my God. And my mom's like, yeah, it was clearly, you know, my pediatrician was convinced it was my tonsils and adenoids. And he was so close, but it's like, if he had only gone the step further to look at my tongue, he would have understood why my tonsils and adenoids were big, right? And here's my feel less obvious too. It could be less obvious. It's probably not to the tip or else they probably would have picked it up. Although we've seen that before. We had my mom the other day that was like almost to the tip and she was 30 something, you know, and then realized that she had a tongue restriction. So, oh, I've had it. I've had a baby recently that had it to the tip. I mean, the, the poor baby's tongue was like a snake tongue. It literally forked. And I was like, okay, this is not about breastfeeding. This is about airway and functional movement and really health. And they went back to the pediatrician and came back to me the next week. And we're like, no pediatrician said there's no tongue tie. And I was like, yeah, I'm really not even sure what to say about that. I'm like, we see that too. Or I go, it's not that bad. And it's like all the way to the tip, super thick. I'm like, if this isn't like that bad, I would hate, like, how tight does it have to be for them to be like, oh yeah. But see, I'm like, I'm giving a lecture tomorrow to a bunch of pediatricians, actually. I'm excited slash a little bit nervous about it. Right. <laughs> um, I was uh, uh, speaking at a conference uh, last weekend in Las Vegas for American Laser Study Club. And people are like, are oh, you get nervous for I talk? It's enough for this group. This is easy. <laughs> uh, they're all on board, but um, right. the pediatricians, I'm sure probably 90% of them are not on board. And so uh, that'll be interesting. But all that to say, uh, in reviewing uh, slides for it and stuff, 
the pediatrician textbooks, like Nelson Textbook of Pediatrics, uh, one of the big ones, talks about how there's no evidence that treating tongue ties makes a difference. Uh, it does not lead to speech delay. It rarely causes problems. It will spontaneously lengthen. And so all these statements are in there, but no references to back them up. So they just put them in the textbook before evidence-based medicine. And so right. there's really no evidence to back that, those statements up. Now, there is evidence to the contrary in the last you know, 10 years or so. But again, those things are still in the textbook. And so that's what's repeated by pediatricians over and over and over. Oh, yeah, they'll fall and rip it. Um, but they'll say that to like a baby or not walking, obviously. Mm-hmm. They'll rip the lip tie. Then that sometimes gets um, translated into, oh, they'll fall and rip the tongue tie, which is extremely rare and very difficult to do. You have to fall with some object in your mouth. I've seen that yeah. one time. Yeah. Uh, where they actually fell and did rip the tongue tie uh, with a nice diamond shape, by the way. Wow. Um, I mean, but, when is trauma a treatment plan? Like, I don't understand how. A yeah, don't, can tell don't a wish trauma. Right? No, don't wish trauma on my child. Like, why would you do that? And especially if it's a tiny baby, like a newborn that's having nursing struggles, like, oh, they'll fall and rip the lip tie. Like, that doesn't help me now. Right. That'll be, you know, three, four years down the road. Don't worry. It'll probably mm-hmm. fix itself. So let's say it's spontaneously lengthened or doesn't cause problems or whatever. But meanwhile, like circumcise all the boys or most of the boys uh, with little to no thought about it. And, you know, there's very little, if any, evidence to support that practice. Um, and other countries don't do it like we do in the States here. But yeah, that's a whole nother thing. And that's 10 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. has a fairly high revision rate for circumcision. So a lot of times uh, they have to go back in under general anesthesia and repair it. And it's for zero benefit present, uh, you know, and potentially slight benefit in the future uh, versus tongue tie. I mean, it's 15 seconds instead of 10, 15 minutes. You know, if the stretches are done properly, it's, a, you know, good providers doing it. it very little, you know, our reattachment rates less than 1%. We have to go back in with the laser uh, versus, you know, in the 10 to 20, 30% for circumcision. I'm not sure exactly what the research would say, but that's what some pediatricians have told me. And then um, it has current issues, right, that would see benefit as well as lasting impact. Uh, Walls 2014, our study from 2021 showed that it's treated as a baby, less likely to have symptoms, or if they're not treated as a baby, more likely to have symptoms as a child, which uh, makes makes sense. Like if your mouth is zippered shut, I mean, are you going to have problems with speech and eating? Of course, if your tongue is held down and restricted, uh, you don't have normal mobility, then you're going to have struggles, you know, or, or compensate. But anyway. Right. And I think that when someone really understands the function of the tongue, they get all this. When you understand that it's not, I think it's been so overlooked. Talk about a really overlooked body part. I mean, I feel like it's right up there with like the appendix. Yep. And it's like nobody thinks about it. Nobody does anything with it. It has no they purpose. Like it. Like it's it in the mouth. Pretty important. Of medicine and dentistry. So like the GI doctors, they'd be shocked if they saw like the reflux improve, the constipation improve, mm-hmm. other GI symptoms improve. It's like they think the mouth is over here to the side and then the GI tract, you know, it's like, no, no, like the mouth is the start of the GI tract. So if you're not chewing your food properly, it's not going to, you know, take the rest of the journey properly. If you're swallowing air, that's going to cause a problem. Like there's all these little things like that. So absolutely. And it's, it's kind of astounding, but it does, it feels like they start at the GI tract at, you know, maybe the esophagus or at the stomach, but it's like, they forgot that, you know, you go a little bit beyond that and there's the mouth and the tongue is incredible. Like before I started all of this, I had no idea how amazing our tongues were, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, nine muscles in there and just so much movement and importance really, like you said, I mean, in, in our cranial nerves involved in feeding. I mean, it's an extremely complex process has to be coordinated just right. And if it's not, then you're gonna have all kinds of problems. And then like, uh, syndactyly. So where a baby's fingers are stuck together, it's obvious, right? Like when they're born, they're counting their fingers and toes. Like, oh my gosh, there's nine fingers, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we have to get this fixed. This is a big deal, you know? And they'll do it later on. They won't do it right away, of course. But I mean, okay, that could impact a piano playing, guitar playing, writing, typing, I guess texting now. But mm-hmm. you know, this a few things. Uh, the tongue impacts speech, eating, sleeping, breathing, dental development, posture, obviously breastfeeding, bottle feeding, um, you know, babies are oral first. Um, and so they can have control of their mouth, not control of their hands and other things like that. So that's the way they sense their environment. There's so many things the tongue is plays a part in, uh, versus like, you know, your fingers, like a couple things. So yeah, much, much bigger deal to get the tongue released than, uh, the syndactyl your fingers even, but it just one is obvious and one is less obvious. 
and the fingers, if you just cut it halfway, people would be like, oh, no, you got to get to the palm, right? They could uh-huh. see, uh, you know, where, how far down it needs to go because everyone knows how far your fingers are supposed to go. With the tongue, people don't realize how far back it actually goes. Um, so when babies, we make sure to get all the mucosa and the fascia, the connective tissue, stuff you pull off a chicken. Uh, we don't take muscle in babies, of course. But yeah, you have to get all that out there uh, or else it's not going to have normal mobility. And then if you don't do stretches right, it'll grow back together. And then it's like, if you got your ear pierced, but didn't wear the earring, it'll just close up. And then if you don't do, you know, sucking exercises like rehab with IBCLC, feeding therapists, like, you know, you give them the mobility, but then the function is not there. And so you have to address all the different areas. And then the body work, if they're super tight, torticollis, other issues out of alignment, then you're going to struggle because some of those issues like reflux, gassy, fussy can be related to like chiropractic issues or uh, fascia issues. So, yeah. That's it's exactly right. And it's, it's what I'm saying all day long. And it's <laughs> a little frustrating sometimes that it, I just can't believe that it's, you know, it's 2022. And we're still hearing some of these things of, you know, making some progress, I think every day, you know, getting closer, um, as more people are aware of it, and less sensational pieces are published and more like, Oh, this is a real thing. Um, you know, like I'm doing this talk on Saturday for Texas Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. And so I'm sure several of them are doing tongue ties already, but probably the majority are not. So if we can just get to like, hey, let's just check for it. Just look for it when you're doing your exam, you know, looking at the teeth, check the lip and check the tongue. It takes 10 seconds and ask, you know, a quick screening question. Like, hey, mom, any issues with speech or eating or sleeping? Mom says no, they look good. Then there's nothing to do. But if there is something there, when in our research we published last year, it's, it's around 26% of the kids had a tighter tongue and symptoms where the mom was like, yeah, we want to come back to the tongue tie center, get this checked out and like do a more in-depth evaluation. I mean, so it's probably a quarter of the children are having struggles with this and babies. It's probably similar. Some would say a third of the babies even. Uh, So the research from Brazil showing right now, right? 32.5%. Yeah. Yeah. Marcus on and Martinelli, 32.5% had posterior tie. Uh, Research would say four to 10% is anterior tie. And so, I mean, it's, it's up there. Uh, I, I just say a quarter to sound conservative, but I mean, the pediatricians, others are looking at these things that are, you know, in, in med school and residency, like we learned about all kinds of stuff in dental school that was one in a million, right? one in 10,000 people, these super rare tumors and just genetic diseases. And we learned all about these syndromes and, you know, we'll probably never see one of those or we might see one. You know, we've, we've picked up osteogenesis imperfecta a couple of times. Like we picked up some other stuff, uh, but you know, for these things that are super rare versus this is like one in four kids. So, I mean, you're going to see it so many times during the day. So people are like, oh, what's well, common? Well, common doesn't mean normal. All right. Just because something's common doesn't mean it's normal. It's not, you know, cavities are common, but they're not normal. They shouldn't have cavities in their teeth, you know? Right. I think that, I think the biggest key, especially with the pediatricians is, getting them on board with the idea that they don't have to be an expert. We don't want them to treat it. That's not, I mean, if they want to, and they want to delve into all this, that's great. Extra training. Yeah. Right. We're not asking them to do that. All we're really wanting is some screening and referrals. Like, yeah, you know, just like everything do for anything else. If it's not taking the tonsils out or, you know, yeah. If they're not doing scopes on the, yeah, all these things, but yes, yeah, just identifying it and referring appropriately. And so, I mean, sometimes they're like, oh, okay, send them to the pediatric dentist or send them to the ENT, but they don't teach this in residency for pediatric dentistry or ENT for that matter. Right. Um, it's and really so unfortunately it's, not taught in any program. Lactation either, as you said, yeah. and like speech therapy programs. I mean, you think like if anyone like lactation would be all about this because uh, they can see the results firsthand, but right. yeah. And ENTs, you would think that this was a big part of ENT, but it's not, it's not taught. No, 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 no. It's just, and that's what I tell people. People are like, oh, I need a new pediatrician or I need a new ENT or something. It's like, well, it's not that your pediatrician or ENT is a bad person. It's just a systemic lack of education. And unless they had a personal experience with it, like I had, like, you know, like lots of people, Dr. Gahari at ENT mm-hmm. had a personal experience uh, with his children. Uh, I mean, that's what typically a lot of people, um, it's, you know, this happened to my child. That's how I got in this whole mess in the first place. Our twins had it. And then you start going down the rabbit hole and realizing, oh my word, this is a big problem. Oh yeah. I mean, almost every provider that I have been meeting with across the country from, you know, Seattle down to San Diego and across to Florida, it's almost always a personal story 
that yep. there's a reason we went into, because most of us didn't plan on this. You know, this wasn't like, oh, we're no. just going to start doing tongue tie stuff because it's we got to cool. Do fillings and crowns and extractions and cleanings. You know what I mean? That's the easy thing. Uh, no one gets mad at you for that, but people will get mad at you for telling them their child has a tongue tie. Sometimes it's like you think that they, you just told them their child is autistic or something. It's like, no, no, this is easy. We can help you with this. It's right. not you know, the end of the world. It's, it's easy, but yeah, it's certainly a lot easier just to do yeah, the mainstream stuff, but it's, it's rewarding in different ways. So you fix, you know, like a, someone's tooth with the filling and then they bite down like, yeah, that feels about right. Maybe a little bit high. You know, like, what did you really do there? I mean, you prevented them from having pain and losing the tooth, of course, later on setting up an orthodontic problem. But I mean, when you fix a tongue tie, it's quicker than a filling. Uh, it's, you know, 10, 15 seconds normally. It just depends if it's an adult, obviously it takes much longer and we're suturing and stuff like that if it's a teenager or adult. But in babies, I mean, it can change a lot of stuff, quality of life issues, not just for the baby and the mom, but the whole family. Because um, mom was triple feeding before and had no time for the other kids and dads running, you know, double duty, trying to take care of the kids and, you know, working and all these other things while mom's at home with the baby and very struggling, you know, yeah. uh, postpartum depression. We've even had a couple with postpartum psychosis. I mean, it, it gets serious yes. uh, quickly if, um, you know, these feeding issues aren't addressed. And I've had all my list of things to do to write a blog post about postpartum depression, because the number one risk factor for postpartum depression is not being able to feed the baby the way you want to. Yes. Yes. You know? I see it all the time. And I, I refer regularly and it's a big struggle. It's a very, very big, very real struggle that pretty much my clients are almost universally. Occasionally I'll have someone that I start with prenatally and everything goes fine. And those are rare, but almost rare, all yeah. of my clients the birth are plan. The birth plan never goes the way you want it to. And so like, you know, people end up with a C-section or, you know, medicated birth or whatever, and they, or the home birth, they had to get transferred. And so they wanted to do it a certain way, uh, which is great. But then, you know, it takes a turn and then they're like, okay, well, at least I can feed my baby the way mm -hmm. I want to. And that doesn't go right. And they're like, oh my gosh, like nothing I do is right. Yes. And the hormones and like, you know, it hurts every time they latch on and it's just, yeah, it's a mess. And then people are like, just give them some formula. And like, no, I'm not doing, you know, I'm sure you see that. And so it's, I mean, it, it is a struggle for sure. The struggle is real. A, I think it's a really big health issue too, like a global health issue, because people are not always understanding the importance of breast milk and direct breastfeeding. And I'm not to say yeah. that someone shouldn't, if they choosing formula, that is completely fine. Or they're choosing yeah. exclusive pump. We don't do, we don't do bottle shaming or formula. No, shaming. no. I'm very much about this is your child. You do what works for you. What I don't like is when somebody wants to do something else and they can't, you know, they're wanting to yep. breastfeed and they can't because buy or pain or whatever is going on. That's where I feel like it's a big issue. But I'm like, when we talk about breast milk being food, it's also medicine. And when you look at these, yep. like these are major health issues, like you said, then we get into postpartum depression and then we get into, you know, family stress and the havoc that that wrecks and everything else. And I mean, these have big implications when things go well, the yeah. first three months, they that's have just a neonatal divorce. That's just an infancy. I, I know it's terrible. The marital stress. Yeah. It's um, and we had someone in from DHR the other day, right? It was a, a caseworker with his little baby, you know, that's been given up for, um, you know, in foster care. Aww. And you have to wonder like so many of these kids we're seeing are in DHR custody. They're in foster care. A lot of them have tongue ties and I'm not saying that's the cause, but it doesn't help. You know, if someone's like on the edge of like, you know, being able to take care of their children, but then this throws a big wrench in it. They're not sleeping at night. They're not eating well, colic, they're screaming all the time. I mean, that adds a lot of family stress. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that's why people beat their children, but I mean, neglect and physical abuse could certainly stem from the baby's not eating well and just screaming all the time. And mom's like, stop crying, you know? Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> my, I told you I had colic as a baby and my mom was young. She was uh, 24 with her second kiddo. I guess that's not that young, but um, you know, she was old now. By the, yeah, right. <laughs> she was, it depends on where you are in San Francisco. That was extremely young. Most of my yep, clients yep. were like, you know, 40. Um, yep. that, but, after they go to law school and I get a career and then like, let's have a kid now. Right. But my mom was told by the pediatrician that I was the kind of baby that would get shaken baby syndrome or got abused because I never stopped crying. Yeah. 
And yeah, I mean, it, you know, I mean, I can like, see how it happens. Even mentally stable people, like there's only so much you can put up with, with sleep oh, yeah. deprivation, which is a form of torture and screaming, crying like that. Yeah. It could, it could easily happen even to the best of people. I've seen, um, and I've so, actually seen shaken baby syndrome when I worked in the NICU and there's mm, probably nothing more heartbreaking than that because those parents were terrible. not bad people. They just snapped yeah. and it had been months and months yeah. of screaming and crying and not getting help, right? Going to the pediatrician and being told the baby. I know. Oh, it'll get better in four months. Yeah. And like, it's I still, terrible I'm pain. Oh my gosh. I just got goosebumps. Like thinking about, like, I can still picture the family and that was just, and that mm. was, I mean, terrible. my gosh, that was probably about 14 years ago. Cause it was before I had my oldest and it was heartbreaking. I mean, heart, it's kind of like the, when you hear about the stories of people, forgetting about a baby being in their car and dying. And it's like, mm-hmm. people are quick to judge them. And I'm like, you, you d- didn't walk in their shoes and they're not bad people. They yeah. just had, no. you know, one thing happen on this day that led to horrible consequences, but it is yeah. I think sleep is probably, that's the thing that I bring home to parents. That's the one that I bring home. And I'm like, forget about feeding. Yes. You could give the baby a bottle and yeah, it'll still not solve all these problems, but forget about that for a moment. Forget about speech forget about everything else. I say, when you mess with sleep, you mess with yep. growth and development, okay? brain development, everything. Yeah. Just number one. And you mess with emotions, your mental health, your ability to function and stay calm. Like how well do you feel if you've gotten half the amount of sleep of normal? Like, oh yeah, it's not good. Yesterday we had one yesterday. The mom said this baby has never slept for more than an hour and a half at a time. And there was like a six month old baby. And so part of it's, you know, that they're not getting enough milk. They're working too hard to get the milk out because the mm-hmm. tongue's not moving. Efficiently. Part of it's they're swallowing air. So they're full of gas and I mean, they don't feel good. Right. And so it goes back to the colic. I mean, they're screaming. Colic is not normal. It's a symptom. It's not mm-hmm. a diagnosis to hang your hat on. So if they're colicky, like, okay, there's something wrong. Baby's trying to tell you that they're hungry all the time. They're gassy. They don't feel good. They're they in need pain. A, Something. a chiropractor. Something's wrong, right? So yeah, for those listening, it's not normal. Get, get help. But this baby's not sleeping for those reasons. And then plus, if your tongue is held down, you mouth breathing, which automatically decreases your quality of sleep. A lot of the babies are snoring or they're congested because they're spitting up a lot and milk gets back up in their nose and they're full of milk boogers, basically. Right. And so- they can't sleep well. And then the tongue, again, being held down is flopping back in the airway during deep sleep. And then it cuts off your airway like sleep apnea, which sounds scary, kind of is, um, because the babies need to breathe, obviously. And at that age, their brain is developing at 1% a day. So by the time they're age three, the brain is 80% the size of an adult brain. By the time they're five, it's 90% the size of an adult brain. That happens during deep sleep. So if they're just being woken up constantly, uh, it's called micro arousals, where they just wake up little bits all night long. They're not going to get high quality sleep. Growth hormones not secreted, like you said, so they're not going to grow right. Their immune system's not reset. Literally every system resets during sleep. And right. so, and then the parents aren't getting good sleep either. <laughs> yes, so. that's that's the point I always try to drive home to the parents is is sleep. And I, I say. Number one, growth and development for your child. And number two, your mental health and your ability to function. And if we can address nothing else but fixing the sleep, like obviously it's going to fix the other things. And I know that, but I'm just trying to like make them see that sleep is very essential. And this Mm -hmm. is deeply impacting sleep. And it's, it's a bit hard though, for some parents, sometimes they'll look at me and be like, really? Their tongue is affecting their sleep. I know every day. Like, how, how does that work? And I have to go through like a broken record and explain it again and again and again. But you see these light bulbs go off. Like, oh my word. Like, what about my three-year-old? I'm like, uh-huh. he's snoring, grinding teeth, sleeping restlessly, sleeping with his bum up in the air, like tripod position or head extended, like a CPR position. They have dark circles under their eyes. Are they hyper? Oh yeah. He's bouncing off the walls and you know, they're not getting high quality sleep. So then they're just chronically sleep deprived and then they get misdiagnosed as ADD and a label put on them. And then that mm-hmm. follows them the rest of their school career, maybe the rest of their life, you know, and it was a, it was a tongue restriction might not be obvious. A lot of times it's not might just be halfway restricted, right? Halfway back. But mm-hmm. for that individual child, it was too tight. They had speech issues and, or eating issues and, or sleep issues. It can be any combination. We get a perfect speech, but terrible sleep and eating or perfect sleep, but terrible speech and eating. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what's, that's what's tricky about the diagnosis of tongue tie. It doesn't have to hurt with breastfeeding. 
they don't have to be losing weight. Almost everyone comes to us and say, well, we were debating common, uh, not to rag on the pediatricians. We love our pediatricians. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But they're often like, my pediatrician said not to come because he's gaining weight. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you have every other check mark. You got 25 symptoms here that are red flags, but we're gaining weight because you're triple feeding him. You know, if you weren't triple feeding him and compensating, then he would be losing weight, you know? Um, or and so him with or, an oversupply, right? Or an oversupply. Yeah. yeah. Or, or using a bottle with, you know, endless formula supply. So like, you know, there's, there's ways, well, most of the babies we do, I'd say are chunky. We get uh -huh. some that are, that are failure to thrive, but a lot of the tongue tied, probably the majority uh, are, are gaining weight, you know, normal weight gain an ounce a day or they're or chunky even, uh -huh. but they have all the other symptoms. And so weight gain is one of the worst indicators of whether there's a tongue tie or not. <laughs> um, it's kind of the preponderance of symptoms. If there's 10 or 15 or 25 check marks on the form, um, they can download it at our website, uh, tongue-tie-al.com slash professionals and get all our forms we use for free. But if, if they have a bunch of form check marks on there, well, that's a problem. You know, there's, there's too many red flags. It's not just a coincidence. Right. I love, um, by the way, I do love your forms and I love that I've been to some offices recently and seen your forms and I'll hear, oh yeah, I took Richard's course. And so now I'm using his forms. I'm like, aren't they great? We don't need to reinvent the wheel. We need to all work together. Yeah. I mean, and I, the infant form, like I got from Dr. Cotlow uh -huh. and I you know, changed it a little bit and added, I think the key is it's on one page and then the, the child form I just created from scratch. Uh, but it, again, it's all on one page. You can see it. It's very clear, has like the greatest hits or the, the most important things we see. And how we came up with the child form was those are all things we saw improve after the tongue tie release. So, right. you know, constipation didn't used to be on there, but then after we had five, 10, 15, 20 people come back saying that their child's constipation improved. Well, maybe there's something to it. Then we start thinking, how is that possible? And we talked about, you know, chewing is the first step in digestion and the strength of the swallow. Well, that affects the peristaltic wave that travels down the GI tract. And, you know, when you release the fascia, it relaxes, you know, puts them from sympathetic or fight or flight into rest and digest or parasympathetic. And the food, you know, again, passes through better with the vagus nerve. Uh, so, you know, there's several reasons why constipation is impacted. So we added it on there and now everyone's checking. Yes, my child is constipation. They come back a week later. Oh my gosh, constipation's improved or bedwetting or whatever. All those things uh, we just saw improve after releases. So we add them to the form and they seem to hold up pretty well. So I know it's absolutely anyway. amazing. I know the other thing I'll tell parents too is weight is not an indicator. Like if I were to look at my health and only look at the number on the scale, is that a full yep. picture? Not really. That's no, not going to tell you anything. Right. Like it's, that's a starting point. That. one data point out of 50, right? Like yep. we need so many more. I and mean, that's not going to tell you how I'm feeling. And like if, if it's extremes, you know, if you're, if you're 500 pounds, okay, there, there's something probably wrong there. So if the baby's failure to thrive, right. You know, but like if they're a normal weight, you know, and you can't tell if there's a problem or not. Um, right. Dr. Gahari gives the example of like the knee pain. Like if someone comes in, like my knee is like having seven out of 10 pain. Like, and they just look at it and it's like, looks fine to me. That's what they're doing to these parents with tongue ties. Like, no, you like manipulate the knee and like lift it up and check its range of motion, you know, put your hands on it to feel and make, okay, yeah, there's something here or go see the, refer them to the orthopedic doctor. You know what I mean? But yep. with tongue tie, they take a peek in there, no gloves, uh, tongue depressor maybe, um, and, or look in the car seat or the baby cries. They're like, oh, it's not to the tip. So it's not a tongue tie. Hmm. Well, with posterior, the ones that are most of the time painful, like six, seven out of 10 plus pain, sometimes 11 out of 10 pain, mm -hmm. like I'd rather be in labor pain. Those are posterior tongue ties most of the time. Right means just less obvious. Doesn't mean it's back by the tonsils. It's in the same place right under the tongue uh, where the freedom is. It's just, it's not attached to the tip. It's might be halfway back, might be 10% or 20% there, but you can feel it and you can get pictures of it. Uh, it's a real thing. <laughs> I think one of my favorite things about doing these virtual visits is that I'm not doing the exam. And when I am talking to parents through it, you know, we'll set everything up and we'll talk before we do the exam and go through everything because, you know, once we start and the baby's crying, they won't hear me as well, yeah. but we'll set everything up, have the baby with, you know, their head in a good position, good lighting and everything else. And the parents are like, still kind of going, I don't, I don't know what to do. And we talk through it and then they'll put their fingers in. And when they push down and they see that frenum pop up, they're like, oh my gosh, the baby has a tongue tie. I'm like, yeah, there yeah. it is. It's right there. Like, I know. I knew before. I knew before that, like I, I knew because you had all the symptoms, like, yes, 
there has to be something there. And so most of the time with babies and even children, it's just symptomatic treatment. Okay, they're gassy, here's some gas drops. They're colicky, here's some gripe water. They're not gaining weight, here's some formula. It hurts, here's a nipple shield. Just all these little things that like symptom with Band-Aid, Band-Aid, Band-Aid. It's like the fruit on the tree. They can see the fruit on the tree. It's an apple tree, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's like treat that. But the problem is down deeper in the roots. Like there has to be a root cause. You know, something's leading to these things. And so what is that? Very often it's a tongue restriction, but it could be other things. That's why we have everyone see lactation, body worker, like the whole team. Uh, obviously pediatrician they're seeing anyway, but you know, there's so many of these things, again, like colic, they're just, oh, it'll get better at four months. And yeah, I mean, it does tend to get better. A lot of the symptoms actually decrease around four or five months because babies get bigger, they figure it out, you know. They compensate um, better. Yeah. They compensate better, but then they start like, well, they're not talking like they're babbling like they should. And then they have trouble with solids. And then, well, they are speech delayed now. And we're starting speech therapy at two or three, uh, not to mention they just moved the milestones and the goalposts. That's unbelievable. Did you see that? The CDC just changed like I did. walking. Uh, 18 months is now considered normal for walking. What? I did. And I'm like, how, how are you coming up with these? Are, are we just randomly picking like this? Speech. Like, if making a few words, like it said 18 months, it was like making a few words and like, no, no, I <laughs> it's mean, like unbelievable. They're just pushing everything back six months now. And like, uh, uh, is it because of COVID? I don't know. Like, well, babies aren't getting out and they're not seeing anyone's faces. And so just keep the parents back. Like I'm, uh, yeah, well, the, the therapists are concerned because it's going to delay because insurance companies are now use those CDC guidelines as well. He doesn't qualify for PT yet. Cause you know, he's 17 months and not walking yet. Like, you know, yeah, just well, all these little things. They took off crawling, right? Crawling yep. is no longer developmental. Well, it doesn't matter. Right? Crawling, crawling is quite important. Like <laughs> being a quadruped is actually a it's really insane. skill makes no sense at all. It's just like, oh, the, and when the, you look at, kids down of America. Who, you know, if you look at kids who crawl differently, like I had one crawler that did, she crawled with one leg extended, like that army crawl kind of thing. And like, she would almost yeah. crawl in like a circle sometimes dragging herself right? and stuff. And I mean, a lot of times, like now I look back and I'm like, oh, well, clearly someone needed body work. Well, and her tongue really looked at, but you know, a little late for that at the moment <laughs> as a baby. Um, but it's like, that is a symptom that's that's showing yeah. that something isn't red flag right something is, something's wrong here look further but i think I that, like you said the problem is that there's some diagnosis that once they do it once they check that box they stop looking colic and yeah. add are two huge ones or adhd yep. or where autism they, yeah they've just labeled and then everything gets blamed on that so like i mean autistic kids choking on food like Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Choking is not a symptom of autism, but right. like they're like, Oh, like, well, they're autistic. So like, you know, they have texture issues and they're choking on their food. Like, but they have every check mark on our tongue tie form symptom form. You know what I mean? Like you can have a tongue tie or tongue restriction and autism. You can have a tongue restriction and down syndrome or, and a cleft palate. In fact, most cleft babies and cleft kids have a tongue restriction kind of goes with it, like with midline defects. So, you know, there's some of these things, prematurity. Oh, well they can't eat the premature. I mean, yes, but their tongue is also restricted, you know, (laughs) you can have both. So, well, and I think too, that anytime you have something else like a cleft palate or prematurity or autism, once you've gone in that, that cascade of having something, you know, quote unquote wrong and something that's not normal, then we run the, you know, you're more likely to have other things, right? You're more likely to have some other issue and it's, the problem is they just kind of stop looking, right? And that's, yeah. you know, it, it well, doesn't- They were in there for eight hours doing this cleft surgery. I mean, you don't, think was, don't you think they would have seen his tongue? Nope. They put a retractor in, cranked the mouth open. They can't see the tongue then, you know, like they're yeah. not looking down there. I'm not saying they're bad plastic surgeons. They're amazing and gifted at what they do, skilled surgeons. But, you know, you have to check under the tongue and check it properly. Well, it helps when you, you find out the functional limitations too, whether you're, you know, with an infant I'm looking at how they're feeding, but it's also, you know, as they get older with children, you're looking at speech and, you know, digestion and oral movement and all of the functions, you know, if, if they're hitting all those check marks on your sheet, then they're clearly having functional deficits. Yeah. And if they come in and there's only a couple of them, 
and but they have all the lip tie symptoms. Okay, well, it's just a lip tie then, you know, it's a big right. gap and cavities or whatever. Um, I love so how your, your list is split between tongue and lip symptoms, right? It, well, people come in with like, oh, my child's got a lip tie, but they checked off like 30 things for tongue. I'm like, hey, mom, there might be something here for the tongue too. I know. <laughs> you know on the baby, the baby form too, the lip ties. I mean, 94, 95% of babies have, you know, what looks like a lip tie, um, but right. not all those are causing problems. So, I mean, if they drove three hours to see me, like there's probably something wrong. You wouldn't drive unless there was a problem, you know? Uh, occasionally we'll get somewhere. It's like, okay, brother had a tongue tie. So we just want to get this baby checked and there's nothing on the form. There's no symptom issues. Hey mom, let's just wait and see. You know, we don't just laser everyone that walks in, of course, but they'll often come in and say, my baby has a lip tie or my child has a lip tie, but then they'll check off all the tongue sides. Like on the left side, of the forms tongue issues. Cause the tongue is the motor. It's what's doing the work. They're feeding inefficiently. They're not gaining weight. Well, um, hiccups even, uh, in utero hiccups, crazy enough, if they're not swallowing properly in utero, it basically gives them hiccups. They come out the hiccup, hiccup, hiccup. We do the procedure and it goes away or stops pretty quickly. Uh, so there's definitely a connection there. I don't have a study to point to, but um, it's, it's something we observe daily. Um, but all these things that would not be related to the lip. You know what I mean? The lips more the seal issues. So like the colicky, gassy, milk leaking out, the lip curling under, or sucking blisters. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some overlap with lip and tongue, of course, but a lot of those who think, okay, that's probably more lip tie issues versus, you know, the, the tongue stuff of choking or gagging, like that's probably more a, a tongue issue. So right. you can kind of separate out. So that's what we did on the form. Yeah. It makes it nice. It's a very easy visual, I think too, for a provider to look at it and go, okay, we've got, you know, most of the check marks on the tongue side, or we're fairly even or just on the yeah, lip. Yeah. And it kind of gives you a quick it just makes the forms easier to use, you know? That's that's the thing. People overcomplicate so many things in medicine and dentistry where it's like, it's hard to tell. Like, you know, it's more art than science. So we tried to like, you know, not dumb it down, but just make it simple. Because if it's not simple, like the hat lift, like the Hazel Baker assessment tool, lingual mm-hmm. friendly function, like it's complicated. You're adding it up. You got to do math. You know, like if it's greater than 14 or whatever, it's a tongue tie. If it's not, then it's not like just all those things. And you know, it complicates so much for people and it's not even valid for kids. People use that on kids. I'm like, that's not what it's used for, but, um, all that to say, yeah, it's, the more we complicate things, the more difficult it'd be for people to receive the proper care. So we're trying to simplify, but, uh, not over treat, but also not under treat. We try to get right in the middle. Right. I mean, the goal is to be treating for functional deficits, not anatomy, right? So That we're, we're yeah. not going to treat everyone who looks like they have a tongue. Yeah, sometimes it, looks, it looks pretty restricted, but they have zero problems. In which case, if you do those and we've, we've done some of those before and they didn't see that many results. And I was like, well, that wasn't worth it, you know? Right. And so we try to only do it if we think they're going to have a quality of life improvement. Now, if it's to the tip and it's a baby and it's going to cause some limitations because it's to the tip or like close to the tip. Um, and then mom's like, Oh, everything's fine. Again, they could have a good supply. There's maternal factors. Nipples could look like bottle nipples. You know what I mean? And so we don't like examine people, obviously, <laughs> uh, just look at the babies, but, um, all that to say, you know, there's other factors involved. And so, you know, if it's to the tip, we will often release those because we know that it would very, very likely cause an issue later on with speech, solid feeding, sleeping, dental development, posture, breathing. Um, and so, right. I mean, I, uh, I tell people too that that's the one exception. That's the one exception to the symptom rule. Right. They'll talk about, you know, well, that you can stick out your tongue so you don't have a tongue tie or baby can. I'm like, okay, the, the, if we want to define it as one thing, which it's not, but if we were going to go there, I said, extension is probably the least important. I'd rather yeah. have elevation, right? Elevation is the tongue key. up on the palate. And if you can do that, then yeah. we'll look at everything else. But I'm like, that is number one because sticking yeah. your thing out and looking at an ice cream cone is least- Yeah, looking at an ice cream cone, playing a wind instrument, French kissing, like that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty much the extent of making fun of people. That's the extent yeah. of like tongue protrusion functions. But like the rest of it, breastfeeding, bottle feeding, speech feeding, sleep, all those other ones, posture, dental development we've talked about, those are elevation of the tongue issues. Right, it's all lifting it up. I know. And often the mid and back portion of the tongue too. So you mentioned research. Can you, can you talk about what you're doing right now or do you need to wait till it's actually out? Yeah, no, I can talk a little bit about it. So um, we've had a couple different articles published. We published the first article connecting uh, tongue ties 
an actually posterior tongue tie and feeding issues back in 2018 with the, just a case series. Uh, we had um, a tongue tie and feeding speech and sleep published in clinical pediatrics in 2020, the TRQ tongue restriction questionnaire. So basically a screening tool uh, was published in 2021. And then now for 2022, uh, it's a lip tie paper. So this one's cool because uh, basically for 70 or so years, everyone said, well, don't treat the lip tie before um, the permanent canines come in. So that's not till like 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. So basically if you treat it as a two-year-old or three-year-old or 18 month old, it's going to cause scar tissue and it's going to leave a gap there that is hard to close with braces. Only problem with that is it's not true. It was again, done in 1972. Bashara is the article, but you can look it up. Um, but like management of the diastema as the article title, but basically the article never once mentioned scar tissue, but then in the years to come, people would quote that article as saying, don't treat it because it causes scar tissue. But like when things are peer reviewed, they never actually go through and read the other articles. So it just kind of perpetuated this myth. Oh, don't treat it early because it'll cause scar tissue. So we went through, looked at 109 of our patients. Um, it was actually from 2015 to 2018. We went through and then to see what happened, you know, in the years to come. And the gap closed up almost 95% of the time. It's like 94.5% of the time, the width of the diastema or the gap between the teeth actually closed. And so uh, we had met some resistance getting this published because it went against the dogma, went against mm -hmm. the, oh, well, don't do it before. Because so like literally we get notes back saying, oh, we didn't send this out for peer review because it's a controversial subject. We can't publish this denied. We'd submit it to another journal and they're like, well, like, you know, this is controversial or, you know, you can't say that it doesn't close because uh, you can't say that it closes because there's no control group. I'm like, OK, so then we switched up and said, all right. It doesn't cause scar tissue, meaning like it doesn't impede closure. We don't have a control group. That's fine. I'll give you that. But you can't say that it causes scar tissue because it closes naturally without braces almost always. Um, no, nothing in medicine is 100%. Even 95% is really good for medicine and dentistry. But uh, yeah, so we're going to get published uh, in the next month or two here. Uh, I've been emailing back and forth about to get the proof probably this week or next week. And so... Yeah, that'll be big when it comes out. It's in an orthodontic journal of all places. We're getting it published, a pretty big one. That's and great. so um, I think it'll uh, make some people question what they've been saying for the last 50, 70 years. Um, but yeah, that's exciting. And it's the same stuff like Kotlo has been saying. In 2004, he wrote an article saying, does not cause scar tissue. If you do it before 18 months old, the gap will close up. Or the next best time to do it is around seven or eight years old as the permanent incisors are erupting. And so we quoted him on that. He's, you know, he got to it first. I mean, I was like in high school when he was publishing those articles. So um, he's definitely the pioneer in that regard. But just looking through with the data that's objective, we like literally measured the width and saw it decrease. So objective data, long-term data, it's, you know, they can't argue with it. So one of the reviewers actually said we, quote, demolished the dogma with the, uh, the evidence, with the data we had. So that's awesome. What? I finally see someone that was open-minded about it. Yeah. What, what timeline did you see? Like <clears throat> over how long did it take her to close up overall? So the quickest we've seen teeth close up was in like a, probably like a one-year-old and it, within a week, it was significantly like we still looked at the picture like, wow, like that closed up quick. One week later, it closed up. I probably say the average timeline is probably six-ish months. Um, all teeth want to drift mesially towards the midline. And so that's why you have to do space maintainers or spacers. If you extract a tooth early, a baby tooth, you got to put a spacer in. You got to hold the space for the permanent tooth or else the other tooth will tip forward. Well, right. teeth want to move to the midline. So if you remove that piece of tissue there, that big fleshy piece of tissue between uh, the two incisors, well, of course, like the teeth want to go towards the midline. You know, it's going to close up naturally. Um, it makes no sense. Like, oh, it causes scar tissue. Uh, but if it's not done properly, if you don't remove the tissue between the teeth, if you just cut like up in the vestibule, uh, then you shouldn't expect it to close up, right? If you just do a scissors and don't actually get down into the tissue, um, you can use electrosurge or a laser is the easiest thing to use. That's what we use. But it didn't matter the type of laser. We did half of them with diode laser, half with CO2 laser. So we weren't even saying, you know, like, oh, yeah, don't use a diode. Um, there's other reasons not to use a diode, but it didn't cause scar tissue. Um, it takes a lot longer. So it takes about a minute per area with the diode laser versus about 15 seconds with CO2. Um, but it's, it still works yeah. uh, and you get good results either way. But the CO2 being so quick, you're going to have 
kind of more cooperative patients and less pain. Yes. And less, less intraoperative pain and postoperative pain is what we noticed. Like, I mean, we would have a nursing strike at least once a week. I get a phone call after hours. We call everyone to check on them. So they have my phone number, but we get someone call back. Like my baby's just not eating, even from a bottle syringe feeding, like just screaming in pain, even with Tylenol. Uh, Once we switched the CO2 laser in 2016, it like almost just stopped completely. Uh, We stopped having those kind of phone calls. Um, so now it might be like once a year, if, if that, honestly, I can't remember the last time we had a baby, like not eating, um, after the procedure. So it's a very well tolerated procedure. Um, it's quick uh, for a child. It's nothing like getting tonsils out. Most of the kids like two or three years old when we do it, parents are kind of worried about it. And then afterward they'll get some popsicle or ice cream or something, some Tylenol, some Motrin. And literally the kids like, Hey, whatever. It's like they fell down and bumped their knee or something. They cry for a few minutes when we do it. And then they act like nothing happened afterward. Wow. So, what do yeah. you see for your older? Cause you treat all ages, which I just think we is do. Amazing. We don't advertise adults. Uh, cause we'd be overrun with adults. Um, if we did, but like, we'll treat the parents if they're doing myofunctional therapy, obviously, or if people find out that we do adults and they're working with a myofunctional therapist, we'll do adults. Um, and we suture, we do the fun- functional frenuloplasty technique like Dr. Zaghi teaches. Um, so it, it tends to work better with uh, the sutures than obviously the myofunctional therapy because they have decades of bad habits. But so for adults, I mean, it's moderate pain. Uh, normally it's worse the first day and then it gets better the second, third, fourth day. Um, don't do stretches for the first few days. There's a whole like, you know, uh, protocol to do. But for older kids, yeah, it depends. That eight, nine, 10 age, even like if we're doing dental work on them, it's just, tend to be more like whiny or have a hard time with treatment. They know they can get out of it if they pitch a big enough fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas like the three, four, five year olds, they still want to be good helpers, you know? Right. And so there's like a, a mental shift there with mm-hmm. the seven, eight, nine year olds um, that we've seen. Uh, but even just like, again, doing dental work, taking out teeth or doing fillings or something. But um, so they might whine a little bit more, but normally they're okay with it. And then of course the stretches, they, they stink. Uh, I tell, I tell parents, if there's a better way, trust me, we would do that. <laughs> uh, right. We don't, we don't want you to have to hurt your child. Um, and so that's, we try to reframe it. We're not doing this to them. We're doing it for them. Right. So uh, all, all kinds of different stuff. And there's d- ways to do stretches, you know, with dignity and, you know, not trying to hurt the child, obviously. Um, but it, it is tough. And so uh, we say about twice a day for kids. Babies is four times a day because um, they heal faster. No less than three, though. Uh, three would be kind of the minimum to do per day. Otherwise, you're just kind of reopening it every single time you do the stretch instead of maintaining, maintaining it open. Yeah, um, I generally with my clients, I generally go with kind of what you say it. My goal is three during the day and once at night. So that's yeah. kind of four. And so I'm like, if we miss one, we've gotten at least three. But I say, try not to miss that night, Tim. One, I know that's hard, but the kid's yeah. still waking up. And if they're sleeping through, I say, really, yeah, if they're sleeping through, I won't make them wake up. But if they're up already, you're like, you're changing their diaper and they're already, you know, crying because they'll cry just for diaper changes at that age, you know, then kind of get a quick stretch and that's fine. But if they're sleeping peacefully, just let them get their sleep and you need to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a wake up. A good one in the morning. That would be pretty brutal. Just do a better one in the morning then, or, you know, push pretty firm in the morning just to make sure, because it's been down that whole time. And so, um, anyway. I know. I'm amazed at myofunctional therapy. I had, I mean, I know that it's good because I've been in this world enough and I know how it's really beneficial and everything, but actually starting it this last week myself with my two kids, it's, yeah really impressive. I was like, changes just with Mayo, obviously. I mean, Oh my gosh. And I was shocked at how tired I'd like the first like four days. I was like every morning I'd wake up feeling good. And then once I did my first, cause I have to do it three times a day. And once we did our first Uh Mayo, I was like, Oh, my cheeks hurt. Like my cheeks. I was like, I did not expect that. It was really interesting. Yeah. You're building up that muscles. Yeah. Just like lifting weights, you know? I know it's, it's a great way to make a difference in your face though. I mean, just seeing some of the before and after my own pictures, it's like, Oh wow. What a way to, it's like, I've heard people tout it as a way to have like a facelift, like just to get your skin. Yes. There's like a mewing and stuff like that. It was like an internet, like a YouTube phenomenon after named effect, John Mew and Mike Mew, um, Mm -hmm. basically doing Mayo to like strengthen your, like tone your face and like, uh, you know, muscles of mastication and stuff. But yeah, it is. Um, it is interesting. And like, you know, there's studies on it, like a Camacho 2015 meta-analysis 
uh, it reduced, so myofunctional therapy alone. So if you combine it with the tongue tie release, obviously if they're restricted, um, you can have even better benefits, but uh, the myo alone will decrease your AHI by 50% in adults and 62% in children, according to that study. And so, I mean, that's really good. Uh, if people are using a CPAP, you know, like, and they do myo with that, like that helps the CPAP work better, helps other therapies work better. Um, so yeah, there's lots of good uh, reasons to do myo obviously to get a proper swallow, get your tongue. And so the goals of myofunctional therapy is to lips together, nasal breathing, tongue on the roof of the palate. So not just the front of your tongue, but the front, middle and back portion, and then a proper swallow. Um, so if you can get those four main goals down, you're doing good, but there's so many different strategies to get there and it's individualized. So unfortunately it's not like so easy as just give someone five exercises and they're good. Um, really working with the therapist is the best way. And now with Zoom and stuff, like we're recording this on Zoom, it's so much easier for people to get help, especially like we're in Alabama. There's only one myofunctional therapist for the whole state. Wow. And so, Astounding. Uh, yeah. So we have to, it's, Alabama's not as bad as you think, but um, uh, you know, we have Walmart. I'm just playing. <laughs> we have movie theaters. We have, uh, we have a nice mall here. Um, but there's, you know, there's only like one myofunctional therapist for the state. So we give out a list of a bunch of people um, that do it via zoom. And so to work across state lines, it have to be a dental hygienist that has myofunctional training. Again, they don't teach us in hygiene school, mm-hmm. um, to work inside that state. It'd have to be a speech therapist have to have a license in that state to do it. So, um, anyway, but yeah, we have a list of people that we give out, uh, for adults and teens and older kids that need myo. If it's a two-year-old, I mean, they're not going to cooperate with a lot of exercises anyway. We'll give them a few to try. Like often they'll do the clicking noises. Mm-hmm. They can do like tongue left and right, like paint the roof. Uh, they can do some of those, the two and three-year-olds, but traditional myo starts when the child can cooperate. Right. And it, it's, I think it's just brings home the idea that we need a team approach that it is not just a one thing. Oh yeah. You know, we get better results. And I've seen it with plenty of clients who are like, well, you know, we can, we can do the release, but we can't do anything else. And I'm like, oh, then should we really do the release? Cause I mean- if it's to the tip, like, it's yeah, it's better than nothing. Like you Sometimes. left them, hopefully left them better than they were. But like with adults and stuff, like Dr. Zaki will talk about, I mean, you do the release on some of these people that are real narrow and have myofunctional dysfunction, right? Their tongue is like not where it's mm-hmm. supposed to be. You release it, you can actually make the sleep issues worse. Yeah. Um, and so, and plus they don't know like, what the heck do I do? Like they have so much freedom. It feels weird to them. And uh, so that's why we don't release uh, adults or teens or older kids really, unless they're working with myo um, older kids if they have a speech therapist that has some you know they're doing exercises they're managing it we'll, we'll do that too but um, they have to be we're selective with who will treat obviously uh, right. we don't like uh, like like I know some people like oh unless they've seen IBCLC won't treat them we see it like most of them have seen someone in the hospital uh, and so we try to get people in we encourage them on, on the phone to see lactation and body work before they come see us but you know, again, not everyone, we have a lot of patients on Medicaid, a lot of patients very rural, uh, or they saw lactation and it didn't really help them because they didn't have, like you talked about this IBCLC masterclass, like, you know, I wish they've all taken that, you know, and they have tons of exercises and tongue tie knowledge and all kinds of stuff. But most people just have the basic, you know, just enough to get the IBCLC designation and know almost nothing about tongue ties. And they'll tell the parent there's no tongue tie there, you know? And so it's, just like there's good and bad uh, dentists, there's good and bad, you know, pediatricians, there's good and bad speech and lactation consultants, or Absolutely. basically we could say educated and less educated, you know, right. on, on that particular topic, not necessarily good and bad, but you know what they I mean? Might be, they might be really great at something else. I tell people all the time that I'm like, if you come to me with, cause like you guys have twins, if you come to me with twins, I'm going to find you somebody else because I've yeah. worked with probably less than five sets of like, I just, it's not my skill set. or no whole nother. And you say you really want to induce lactation for an adoptive baby or you're transgender or something. I'm going to say, I know someone who does that all the time. They're fantastic. I actually know a few. And I'm like, I would refer you out. It's not my skill set, but tongue tie is. So it's not that they're, you know, it's not exactly. It's not that they're necessarily bad, but like another pediatric dentist who doesn't do tongue tie, they might be really great at noticing when kids need expansion and they might be fantastic at cleanings and fillings and all the other stuff but they're just not educated in this one thing. We just, it goes back to the same thing with the pediatricians. We just need that screening and the ability to know what 
a little bit of what you don't know and be able and know enough. We're getting there. (laughs) I don't know. I need to send you to someone who knows more than I do. There's always something. I'm happy with that. I don't know. Yeah. Go see this person. Some, some people say my pediatrician said, I don't know about that. Go see the tongue tie center. You know what I mean? And I said, perfect. That's great. You know what I mean? Like, but when they say there's nothing there, don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. They're just going to laser everyone. It's like, I mean, that's, that's unhelpful. And then the parents go on our Google reviews and read it. And they're like, oh, well, clearly Mm -hmm. like that's not the case here. You know, they have 500 five-star Google reviews. You know what I mean? Right. And when, and most of them say something along the lines of like, oh, after my pediatrician didn't listen to me or after I went, you know, here and didn't get the help I needed, we came here and then it helped and it's better. Um, so that's, that's, what's hard. Education is the missing link. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get there soon. Uh, one of these, (laughs) hopefully, I think you're definitely on the right track. You are not only are you helping families, but with your classes, with your book, with all of your speaking thing arrangements. I mean, you do so much that is getting the word out. I feel like you're definitely a force, especially on this side of the country. It's like everyone is listening and following your research. And I've I've met a lot of providers who are like, oh yeah, the Tongue Tie Academy, that was a great course. And I learned so much. And so yeah, that was a a big endeavor. It took over a year. It is, it is very (laughs) worth, I can see that it's, I mean, I've done a lot of um, online classes and I know we're getting close to timer about done here, but I just want to tell you too, I've done a lot of online classes recently and that is the best quality class that I have done. And I've done a lot of them lately and a lot of them, even on this subject. And you can definitely tell that you guys put the time in my, this isn't just you like, you know, in your office at home at night and recording your thoughts. Like it's a very well laid out. We had a professional film crew and tens of thousands of dollars filming it with like people that yeah, like film commercials and stuff and they yes. film uh, other online courses. And I and can so, tell, yeah. I mean, it's a very, very it well done course. Well, I mean, it's funny cause I sat, I originally tried to just do it like in front of a camera and I was like, Oh, I'll just talk through it. You know, like, uh, like I do for a lecture, like I do for this podcast, you know, mm-hmm. I got the camera. I was like, hi, I'm, Oh, oh. my, my mind just went blank. I was like, this is not going to work. All right. So I have to write out a script so we used a teleprompter. It took me over a year to write the script. It just so happened to coincide. So there's you know, no coincidences with God, but it just so happened to coincide with COVID. Finished the script around that time. We had to close the office down. I had some extra time on my hands. And so uh, we got the film crew in. We filmed it during COVID. And then not just filming, but like getting edited, like getting the whole site set up, all the modules and stuff put in where they need to go, all the learning evaluations. It it's, uh, qualifies for 25 hours of ADA, American Dental Association approved CE credits too. And then um, we actually donate all the money from the course to charity. So we've been able to help a lot of people around the world with clean water projects in uh, yeah, India, Kenya, Uganda, Nepal, Myanmar, all over. Um, uh, so human trafficking, human sex trafficking in India, it's like brothels in India, in Nepal, um, health centers. We built two health centers in Nepal with the money. So that's, what's really enjoyable too. We're trying to pay it forward. It's not just like a get rich quick scheme. Um, and before I knew how much money it was going to produce, I said, you know, we're going to donate all of it. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's done very well. Um, thankfully, um, praise the Lord. But, uh, and, and the book's the same way. The book is all donated to charity. Uh, when people come for a course at the office, all that money is donated. to charity. It all goes in one account. We just give the money out of that account. But um yeah, it's been really rewarding to see uh, all the ways it's been used to help people both locally and around the world with different translations. We have Spanish, French, Danish, Polish is almost there uh, any day now. And then Brazil. Uh, so in Brazil, Portuguese just started and then Dutch just started too. So wow. I thought it's uh, going to be big in Brazil right now, but yeah, I, think- I was like, I can't believe we didn't think of Portuguese yet. So Renata Naimi, who does airway circle, she's translating uh, she's kind of heading up that with a team of people and they're working quick on it too. So I'm sure we'll have that by the end of the year. Uh, lingua pressa, I think is what it's called. Uh, so tongue, uh, yeah, tongue tied in Portuguese. Yeah. I think it's just amazing when you think about the amount of lives you've changed with that course alone, Richard, it's just astounding because like you said, you guys are donating all this money that is changing so many lives. I mean, clean drinking water is not something that we, oh, we really take it think about. Granted. We take for granted. 
And then the amount of lives you're changing by the knowledge and the providers and the families that they can help and the providers that then they can teach and they can spread the word. It talk about making that ripple effect and just really finding a way to make a difference in the world. So I think I, I know exactly why families are so happy that you take the time to sit and pray with them and that you care for each one of them. And I, yeah, I just felt really blessed to be with you in the office and to see your dedication to families and to really making, making a difference in the world and making it a better place. So I think you're definitely achieving that. And I think praise the Lord. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Um, Yeah. We, we work with uh, lots of different families, lots of different backgrounds, uh, spiritual, religious backgrounds. And we always offer to pray with them. Um, and so some people say no, but it's funny because some people think like, oh, they probably wouldn't want to pray because they have, you know, purple and green hair or something or like, you know, just various things. You look at them and they may not want to. And I offer and I say, hey, is it okay if we say a quick prayer before we get started? And they're like, oh my gosh, we would love that. Thank you so much. And so there's a whole another like spiritual dimension people I think are afraid to talk about. Um, and so but I mean, healing, it's emotional, physical, mental, spiritual, like all these um, different areas that if you leave one out, you know, it, I, I honestly do think it works better, the power of prayer. I think the procedures work better. And one of the reasons we get the results we do is because we pray uh, before we do every procedure. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for the encouragement, Katie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure to chat with you today. And I know how much your time is valuable. So thank you very much for giving some today. Yeah, no, of course. Of course. Um, happy to do it and uh, look forward to yeah, talking in the future more. Sounds great. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change you. I hope that you enjoyed the podcast today and learned something new. If you know someone who would benefit from this podcast, please share.